0: Welcome to another episode of the SaaS Podcast. I'm your host, Omer Khan, and this is the show where I interview proven founders and industry experts who share their stories, strategies, and insights to help you build, launch, and grow your SaaS business. In this episode, I talk to Omer Artun, the founder and CEO of Agile One, a predictive marketing platform for business-to-consumer brands. Agile One allows marketers to understand and predict customer behavior to deliver automated, personalized experiences across all customer touch points, online and offline. Now, what do you do if you spot a market opportunity for a SaaS product, but you don't have the money or resources to build that product? Well, that's the situation that Omer found himself in. He was working as a consultant and seeing the same recurring issues with his clients. He knew that a machine learning-based SaaS product could help these clients use customer data to improve their business strategy and deliver a better customer experience. But he didn't know where to start or how to build that product. So he took a different path. He launched his own consulting practice and started solving these problems for clients, one at a time. After a few years he was able to build a productized service and started charging a subscription for that service. It took him seven years to finally turn his idea into a real SaaS product which he shipped in 2012 and he bootstrapped that SaaS product from the proceeds of the services business that he'd been running. So it was a long journey but today. He's raised over $50 million, his company is doing almost $20 million in annual recurring revenue, and he employs 115 people. So if you've ever felt like you're being held back because you have an idea, but you don't have the money or skills to build your SaaS product, then this episode is for you. Or if you're just starting out with your product, or maybe you're currently running a services business and dream about transitioning into a full time SaaS business, then you might just get some insights to help you get closer to that goal. It's a great story, and I hope you enjoyed the interview. Before we get started, I just want to tell you about SaaS Club Plus, our premium membership and community for new and early stage SaaS founders. Plus is designed to help you get the insights, support, and motivation you need to succeed with your SaaS business. We have a growing community of SaaS founders from around the world. Enrollment for PLUS is currently open, so now is your chance to join and become a part of this supportive community. You get instant access to our content library, monthly live mastermind and Q&A sessions, access to our private community forum, and I've just introduced a huge new benefit. You can now get private coaching from me as part of your monthly membership for a ridiculously low price. Now, once all those spots are taken, I'll be raising the membership price. So don't miss out on this deal. You can join by going to sasclub.co. That's sasclub.co. All right, let's get on with the interview. Omer, welcome to the show. Thank you, Omer. That is really weird. I have never interviewed anyone with the same name and you know, we were just talking about this earlier that I've, I don't think I've even met anybody with the same <laughs> name, so this is going to be fun. Uh, so I'm glad to have you here. Um, uh, you know, I always like to ask my guests, uh, what gets them out of bed, what drives or motivates them. So what is it for you? Like what inspires you or motivates you to work on your business?
1: So for me, from an early age, uh, the thing that really drives me is, you know, learning new things. So if, I, if I'm stagnating, if I'm doing the same thing over and over again, that really demotivates me. And the other thing that really gets me out of bed is like building things. So and, and it's both physically and, and mentally, like, you know, creating something is, is really important for me.
0: For people who aren't familiar with Agile One, can you give us a quick overview of what the company does, you know, what problem are you trying to solve and for who? Yeah,
1: Um, you know, at a a very high level, um, we're trying to solve um, how business to consumer uh, brands, you know, can deal with their customers. And you know to understand that i want to go back like 50 years like when you went into a your butcher shop you know the butcher knew your name and what cuts of meat you liked and so forth and and you got some you got personal service um, we went from that to becoming uh, for for economical reasons because of because it's much more efficient to becoming much more channel and product centric so then we you know started buying uh, our our meat in a in a styrofoam package in a supermarket. Then we started ordering it on e-commerce and so forth. So all of that stuff is was optimizing the distribution and and the product and not the customer. So we've lost that personal touch. So the problem and and with with technology and and with you know uh, with the advancements in in digital um, uh, media, we are now able to recreate that. Personal uh, touch uh, at a, at scale uh, for businesses, and and that's the problem we're trying to so solve. We're trying to help businesses to uh, refocus on their customers and and become much more customer centric uh, as they used to be.
0: Now, I noticed that one of your customers uh, on your website was To Me, so I, I'm assuming that that means that. If I walk into a Toomey store, the person that I'm interacting with in the retail store is going to have a lot of the insights about me as a customer and what I've done before and preferences and things like that. And is that kind of a way to think about it?
1: That's absolutely correct. So, um, you know, customers today, the, the problem arises from the customers today interact with brands in many, many different channels. So you might sign up for an email, address, email program, you might give your SMS, you know, phone number for an SMS program, you might call the call center for something, you might go to Me to get a baggage repaired. you might buy three things, you might have moved from one address to the other. So now there's, you know, eight different uh, versions of you in different places and they're not connected. So... So the task to become customer-centric is, first, you need to recognize that these eight profiles that are in different systems are actually the same customer. Um, The second step of that, and and basically just tying tying it all together, the second step is just, you know, because we're trying to mimic what humans did 50 years ago, that's the kind of gist of what we're trying to do. that comes with intelligence. So so you need to not just have the data on people, like what you bought and how many products you returned and all that, but also, you know, how frequently do I buy? What price point do I buy? Does, you know, uh, discounting drives my behavior and so forth. So what you do, to get to that, you need to ask questions to the data, and this is how humans do um, to learn about, to become intelligent. So to become intelligent about your customers, you need to ask questions like this. What's the value of this customer? Is the value increasing or decreasing and so forth? And then based on that, you need to take some action on it. You can't just use this as a, as a reporting or analytical exercise, but you need to change the way you treat the customers and and um, interact with them and market to them and so forth. Uh, and that comes in the kind of the activation phase. So those are the three things that we focus on doing with our product and, and, and again, the underpinning strategy of you know uh, having a, a business with million customers act as if they're a corner butcher shop you know from 50 years ago
0: i think that's a great analogy so i wanted to, you know you started this business back in 2005 and um, there's a lot to cover here but before we before we talk about how you came up with the idea for this business I want to talk a little bit about you, like what is your background, you know, where did you grow up, and uh, when did your sort of entrepreneurial journey start?
1: Sure, I I, uh, was born and raised in Turkey, uh, where I got my undergraduate degree, and then I came to United States to do my PhD. I uh, have received a PhD in physics and uh, computational neuroscience, which is kind of the uh, machine learning, uh, area. Um, and I'll talk a little, little bit about like why I'm fascinated with that, but my entrepreneurial spirit started, you know, when I was early in, in elementary school, um, you know, since, since my early ages, I always knew that I wanted to, um, you know, build stuff and, and do things and, and learn new things. So, um, so with the help of my, uh, uncle who, uh, um, um, uh, taught me how to make uh, paper bags um, from from you know glue uh, to there was you know a bunch of uh, fruit trees in our school backyard, which nobody was picking. So I used to pick fruit, made paper bags, and sold it on the street, you know when I was uh, in fifth grade. Uh, and then from then on, I've always had you know ideas here and there and and always you know wanted to do uh, new things.
0: And and didn't you start doing that as a kid because you wanted to buy a gift for your mother? That's
1: correct. Yes. Uh there was a there, I, I've talked about this in, in another video, but yes, uh it was a Mother Day's uh, Mother Day gift that I, that I wanted to buy for my mom and, and I've saved all the money that I've made from that. And it was a it was a touching moment for my mom. God rest.
0: Love it. That's an awesome story. So let's uh let's talk about uh Agile One and how did you come up with the idea for this business?
1: Yeah, so I um, I received my PhD in machine learning. This is you know going. This is 1999, and at that time I didn't want to go into academia. I I knew that I wanted to be more in the business world, and I real and I what what really uh, struck me is that in the business world, you know, people just didn't use analytics to its fullest extent of what was being used in academia. So I thought that this machine learning, which is, you know, again, I can talk a little bit about that, but, you know, and, and it's a hot topic these days, um, but machine learning really approaches the problems in a different way. It's, it tries to solve not mundane problems, mundane computational problems like tax calculations and all that, but it tries to solve more complex problems that are easy for humans but harder for machines. Um, and I thought that there, there there would be a lot of applications of that, so I wanted to, you know, first you know, understand how businesses work uh, and so forth. So I went to McKinsey and Company to to be a consultant there and and there, you know we use a lot of fact-based problem solving approach and so forth uh, to solve real life business problems. And one of the problems that I encountered was one of the customers, the clients that we had had um, a salesforce sales team that was you know over ten thousand people. Um, they had 16 different product lines. They had, um, you know, um, over 50,000 kind of customers that are, you know, basically everybody on, and on everybody's list and so forth. But what they didn't, what they couldn't figure out is like, okay, some reps know some accounts better and some products better. Um, so how do you assign a, a sales rep to a product to an account? Um, and there was an optimization problem that everybody was trying to use, like Excel spreadsheets to solve. And I basically said, okay, guys, you know, step aside. Let me use some, you know, machine learning to kind of show you how this thing is done. So I built an algorithm. You know, I wasn't using Excel. I was using much more advanced modeling algorithms. And it basically blew people away in terms of the accuracy and the insights they got out of it and so forth. And at that point, I had the idea of, okay, you know, this whole... Analytics approach, the advanced analytics approach is going to make a real big difference in business, you know, over time. So, so that gave me the idea. That was my first, you know, spark. And then from then on, I I, I said, where does this machine learning have the biggest impact? And I thought that, you know, machine learning kind of tries to mimic human intelligence. So I said, wherever humans are making decisions with business that's where it's gonna make a big difference. And and I think that's, you know, kind of business to consumer marketing. So I went and ran uh, marketing for, a, you know, a couple big, you know, multi-billion dollar uh, corporations, uh, last one being at Best Buy. Uh, and and the stuff that I've done there, people started recruiting me to come do it for them. Um, at that point I said, okay, like rather than, you know, go to a big company and, and become the data guy, I said, why don't I turn this into a business because everybody's trying to solve this problem of, I have all this data, I don't know how to make sense of it, I don't know how to take action on it, and so forth. That was the idea uh, behind, you know, starting the company of turning kind of customer data on its head to become, to drive business strategy.
0: Now, you've raised, uh, what is it, $51 million to date. Yes. But between 2005 when you started agile one and 2011 so that's about 6 years you were bootstrapping the business
1: yes that's correct so when i when i wanted to start the business you know first of all i was in you know connecticut i was not in silicon valley so i didn't even know this whole vc landscape and raising money and and all this kind of glamour of of uh, tech world so i i you know as being an east coast you know, East Coast person, I basically said, Look, you know, when you start a business, you have to be profitable. So I, I found a partner um, who uh, have built and, and, you know, sold businesses before, who was a great kind of mentor to me as well. And he put in like, I don't know, $250,000 into the business to get us started, to basically pay for the first few months of my salary and, and office expenses and so forth. And, and basically, I became profitable on month 10, um, selling projects and, and services to companies with the purpose that, like, the money that I would make from services, the margin that I would make, I would invest in, in building a product. And, and the services that I would provide, I would be very disciplined around it um, so that, you know, those are more repeatable things that would contribute to the, to the product that I wanted to build at the end. Um, and that's kind of how it happened. So the first, you know, uh, five years was, you know, going from zero to about 35 people uh, profitably. Um, and at the end of that, I was getting into deals that I just couldn't uh, handle myself. And and with the infrastructure I had, I had no CFO, I had no head of sales or anything like that. It was just me and and a bunch of like super smart young people. So I said, okay, you know, this thing is going to become a real software um, company and and this thing is going to take off. So I said I better kind of move the company to Silicon Valley, raise proper funding, invest, you know, to build this product, not from, you know, gradual drip, drip, drip technology, but, you know, really have a sales team, really have a product team and so forth and build it as a, as a more... Um, product company, you know, uh, you know, rather than a services company, uh, uh, building a product from, from, from its margins. Those are, I think those are really, really different things.
0: Yeah. How long were you running it as a services business before you were able to ship your, your product?
1: So, um, up until probably like 2011, um, we were running it more as a services company. Although since 2009 to 2011, our contracts were were uh, were written in a way that it was kind of like a SaaS contract. So it was a subscription that gave them license to the software that that we built and so forth. But the software was, it was kind of cu- like it was custom configured for every client and so forth. It was not a real product product in the sense of. Uh, a single, you know, SaaS platform, um, you know, single like multi-tenant instance and all that. We didn't have any of that, and at that time there was not a lot of technology to do that anyway. So, so when you know, in 2011, when we got funding, we basically said, okay, let's let's pull back and uh, build the product uh, in a more kind of proper SaaS way, and probably ship the product first product um, probably like
0: you know, late 2012. Got it. Okay. So, so if I understood this, 2005 to 2011 was mostly running it as a services business. But in 2009, you effectively, you know, as you said, you sold it as a SaaS product. And from a customer's perspective, it was starting to look like they were buying a SaaS product. That's right. But on the back end of it, there was still a bunch of, uh, you know, manual or custom work that you were doing?
1: Yes. From an implementation perspective, yes. You know, when you came up with a new code and so forth, it was like hard to upgrade people because they were not on the same kind of database version and so forth. We were not using a single database. We were implementing a separate database for every customer. So from a customer perspective, it looked like they were logging into a product. They didn't have to buy servers and software and so forth so from their perspective it was not a, it was a saas software but from our perspective it was not a saas real saas business in the sense that it's multi like real saas like some some there are a lot of companies today that i know of i'm not going to name any of them they say they're a saas company but if you look under the hood it's basically hosted software so we were hosted software in the beginning and then you know only in the last you know, five years or so, we are truly, truly SaaS, like multi-tenant, single code base, every two-week deployments, all of that stuff.
0: So, I, I'm curious at what point, when you when you started the business, did you decide that you wanted to build a product? Because it, it it sounded like when you you initially launched, it was like you had the vision that you wanted to build this into a product. But uh, from 2005 to 2011 that's like six years so why, why do you think that happened
1: I mean I've always had that vision from day one but it took me much longer to get there because when you are bootstrapping with services you are at the mercy of the next dollar you're gonna get from the next customer you sell to um, right and you don't have funding and and it you know and cash is king you have to pay the bills and so forth so you know the customer kind of dictates the journey a little bit more than what what you want to do strategically like if i had 10 million dollars in the bank at that time like i would have made different decisions like i would have said no to certain things because um the customer wants a feature like they want to have a survey feature let's say okay and i would say like no we don't do surveys because that's not in our kind of strategic interest i don't have other customers that are going to use it but if that customer is paying you money and there's margin in that deal you would do it and then it would tie up development resources and so forth. It would, you know, but you would have to do it because it would pay the bills. It would pay for something else that you needed, and um, but but it's hard to keep focus with um, money coming from services.
0: Yeah, no, I totally makes sense, and I think there are a lot of um, founders or entrepreneurs who are running. A services business have an aspiration to uh, move into a product business, but it's never that, you know, and and even when they get to a point where they feel like they've got a market and they've got customers and they're providing a service, in, in many ways you would think, well, great, you've identified a need, you understand customers, you understand a problem, and you've been doing that for some years and now it's going to be fairly easy for you to uh, translate that into a product business, but I think as you've described, it's not because you're very much at the 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 mercy and the whim of what yeah. your your customers want you to build.
1: And, and the other thing is, there's also a muscle memory of you know it took me from 2011 till 2000 like 13, but probably it took me like two years to understand, really understand the word. Product. What, is a, what does the word product mean? Uh, it took me a long time to understand because if you're coming from the services angle, you know you are, you know, client service oriented. You 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 think in a certain way. You want to service the customer, solve the problem, and so forth. And you do not have the muscle memory to say no. Okay. And and as a product company. More often than not, you have to say no to like ninety percent of the ideas that either come to your head or people come to you with.
0: Yeah. So so clarify that a little bit more for for you know for our listeners who maybe are in that that service mindset, what is different for you in terms of now when you think about a product business?
1: So when I think about a product business, you know, as an entrepreneur, you know, you are very always optimistic. You're always creative and, and chasing ideas and so forth. And that is at odds with, you know, somebody who's a, a very strategic manager that basically sets out a road and it doesn't, they don't deviate from that road. And again, I think the real answer is somewhere in between because, you know, you might, you know, if you have a very straight and narrow course that you, you set out and you don't deviate from that, you might miss the market or you might make mistakes because you need to be adjusting a little bit. But the way a lot of entrepreneurs or even I did, which was some of the mistakes i made is, you know, when you hear, an I- when you hear different ideas, you basically say, "Well, wow, we can do this or we can do that. You know, let's do that a little bit, test the market. Let's do that a little bit, test the market. I think, I think again, like there's no, there's no one right answer, like being completely like idea driven is, is, is chaos. But being kind of too narrow focused on a path is also failure so i think you need to understand you need to be able to go on the straight as straight path as possible with uh, some twists and turns that are dictated um uh, strategically but if you make a twist and turn like every five minutes then then you will you will go into chaos if you keep a hundred percent straight line that you will fail I think the right answer is somewhere in between, which basically is the comment that I made earlier is 90% of the ideas that come to your head, you should say no to. Yeah,
0: I think that's a, a really good point because you can be like so narrowly focused on what you want to go and build that you actually miss the opportunity or at the other extreme. You can be so open to what your customers are telling you that you go in all different directions. Right. Um, so there is this thing about, yeah, you need to have this vision and you need to kind of work towards that. But I think there are plenty of stories out there, and I'm sure you know of, of many as well, where, you know, founders were headed in one direction, but they actually got their breakthrough when they listened to what a customer was telling them.
1: No, of course, you have to listen to the customers. Like There's no, there's no two ways about, like again, like, you can't just think that you know better than the market. Like, you can't just set out that straight course and not deviate from it. But what I'm saying is like, if you uh, have a product product roadmap and do not change your next three month roadmap ever, like if you want to change your roadmap, finish what you're doing in three months, or maybe it's two months, maybe it's six months, whatever the, the right break point is, but you should not, you know, get the next idea and try to pull in your CTO or your head of engineering and say, oh, can we do this? Can we explore that? Like, don't do that. On a weekly basis or a multi basis, like you need to have whatever the short term roadmap is, that should not be changed. What whatever twists and turns you make should be affecting more longer term roadmap or or midterm low roadmap. Is the if you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, yeah, that totally makes sense. Okay, and so you know, to you you talked about starting out the services business. You're very focused on this. Uh, Getting to profitability as soon as possible, which is, you know, sometimes a novel concept for some businesses. Um, Like, how are you getting the word out? How are you finding uh, customers or I guess clients in in those days?
1: So in those days, um, I would use my network, number one. Uh, And number two, I found problems that I knew was quantifiable that I could solve. Um, that people put, put, would pay money for. So, you know, in those days, I mean, in, in those days and still today, people have a problem with like they invest a lot of money in marketing, but they don't know what works and what doesn't work and they don't know how to optimize it. So I would go to these companies and say, look, you know, I'm going to optimize, like, you basically give offers to everyone right now, you know, the discounting offers. I will basically figure out like which customers you should give what offers to, which will help you, you know, lower the total discounting you make and increase the value of customers, right? It's very much in line with what, you know, our our company's vision is. And it, it basically did an immediate value of like, I you know, I've reduced their marketing spend by 20, 30%. I've reduced their discounting by 20, 30%. And that immediately opened up millions of dollars that, you know, I could get like a few hundred K out of that.
0: Got it. And then when you were working with these companies, like, you were doing all of this manually, you would gather data and then sort of go away and, and.
1: Yes. Yep. I would basically have a server with, with you know, get their get their data and, and, you know, go to on site and do certain stuff. So I did that. I did that in the beginning and then, and then I hired, you know, one person, second person, third person, and then we started, you know, um, building some of the library of, of certain analyses that we did. So, we you know, as soon as we put the data in the right format, those analyses would kick out or models and so forth. Um, and, and that basically gave us, you know, that basically gave us the, the opportunity to say, you know, not only I will do this thing once for you, but, you know, you know, this project is 200K, but if you paid me like, 5000 a month, you know, I will keep repeating this, you know, and you send me the data, I'll repeat this and send it back to you. That was kind of the, the start of the so-called subscription, which is like 2007, 2008 timeframe. And then the next step of that was, well, you know, I'm not going to do it based on your servers, on your data, but, you know, why don't you just feed me the data? I'll have the software like loaded on our system and you can access it from our uh, office so I literally literally had a closet uh with servers in it that you know basically served web pages of intelligence and so forth This is two thousand eight two thousand and nine time frame um and then we started basically saying like look it's not two hundred k you know to do this project it's eighty k to do this project and it's eighty k per year ongoing right like it's it's so so it basically that was the start of the SaaS thing in 2008-2009 timeframe.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think it's really interesting the way that you made that transition in terms of services business, then looking for recurring revenue from the services, then sort of building, um, this sort of front end. So sort of, it's almost like this, you know, I guess they call a concierge MVP that, you know, from a customer perspective, it, it looks like, a, a SaaS product right. and then you know eventually actually building all the back-end technology it's been a I mean that's been a what a six six seven year journey to make that transition
1: Yep, and we had to build the software twice that was also very painful but yeah
0: you, you had to build it twice because
1: it was both a personnel issue in terms of like you know I think the there are a couple of things there so we had this the specs for the software we wanted to build was pretty well defined, like what the customers wanted at that time, like in 2011. But then um, the, you know, I hired a professional kind of development team and so forth. And I had like great kind of junior technology people that built this initial thing until 2011. And, and it worked really well for us until that time. Feature-rich, was very nimble to do new things and so forth, but it was just not scalable, right? So so now you're going from being very nimble and, and customer-driven to becoming much more product-focused, something that's scalable and upgradable and all those, and, and managed, you know, as a real product with documentation and all that. So going to that, you know, I hired the professional kind of development team and, you know, there were personnel issues there. I, I didn't choose the right people because I, I'm not a software developer personally myself. Uh, I'm more of an algorithmic algorithm like math guy. Um, so then um, the initial product they built was, uh, because we're dealing with large data, they, we were using some of the new uh, database technologies, these kind of big data technologies at the time was just brand new. Um, and I would say like 50% of the technologies were crap and the other 50% was way too early or way too buggy to work Um, so we kind of um, you know uh, struggled with that for a couple of years and then in 2014 we basically said okay we gotta throw all this away and we gotta build a new platform so then we started building that and we came up with our product like at the end of 2015 beginning 2016 so for the last, you know, three and a half, four years, we're on this, you know, kind of newer platform um, that really works well.
0: What were some of the issues you were facing with that first product? Like how was it impacting your day-to-day business or the lives of your customers?
1: Um, this, is, this is a common problem with some developers. Like, you know, I, I've always seen uh, every developer wants to do certain things the way they want to do it. So anything that somebody else did is never good It's because it's not invented here. And they also want to use always like the newest technology and so forth, which, you know, sometimes lead to, you know, using immature technologies and, um, you know, you you can't find enough people to to hire and, and, and use those technologies and so forth. But, um, but I think like the right leader kind of solves that problem. And the problems that we ran into with the previous platform was, you know, the machine learning core was using one version of Java. The other, like, some UI framework was using some other version of Java. And don't quote me on these things because I'm not really proficient in these things. But those <laughs> things those things didn't work on the same server because they were using two different Java versions and blah, blah, blah. And they had to, like, do a bunch of, like, jump through a bunch of hoops to fix that problem, right? Like, so... Those type of things, like you know you need to use not the made it the latest technology but you know kind of the easiest path possible that has the highest um you need to build a product not because it's the coolest technology but something that is can be maintained easily
0: yeah no, I totally understand, and I think you know there there's one thing from taking a a new new piece of technology and building a, a side project as a way to, to learn the technology and, and to get experience with it. And there's another thing turning that into a, a production, you know, system or product that is going to be used to run and scale a business. Right. And and it sounds like the, the, the former was used to do the latter here, right? Yeah. And then when you built it the second time, did you, had you raised enough money and do you hire like your own team or were you still outsourcing
1: You know, we hired the second team. Uh, or We hired, I mean, the same team, like we just got new leadership and new architects and so forth. And that worked out well, you know. But again, it took it took, you know, again, I, I think every founder or every company is strong on certain things. Like we were very focused on, kind of this machine learning intelligence and you know the the creating value for the customer um and um and i think the the whole you know software piece of it kind of it took two tries to fix it two, two tries to get there
0: yeah and and so today uh how big is the company like how many uh, what's the size of your team
1: so we're about you know 115 people um and our revenue um, is getting close to 20 million,
0: 20 million ARR. Mm -hmm. Um, so when you look back at this journey that you've taken, I guess, for the last 14 years, what are some of the things that you wish you had done differently? Or what are some of the, the, the mistakes that you made that you you feel were were some of the most valuable lessons you learned? Um,
1: I would say the number one, there are two things I would, I would do differently one is um, again it took me a while to understand what a product is so before before you have like if you're bootstrapping and 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 then and then you take money I think I wish what I have done is you know when I've taken the first money uh, not put any kind of revenue or growth pressure on myself and basically Retrieved and built the right product that would scale fast. I think, you know building the product while you're trying to grow uh, You know putting the revenue pressure and the product pressure um, Is not the right thing to do uh, because at the end what you create is You sign up. A, we've signed up a lot of customers on a product that wasn't the right product wasn't scaling um, so those customers that need to be migrated and so forth. And then that's painful, right? Like you lose some of those customers, you migrate some of them and so forth, but you're basically yeah. not, not ready. So figuring out like having the right product is, is the right thing. and And having the right product also means that, you know, the customers are also ready to buy. So the market also like you need to look at the signals of like, when you want to scale, like that comes to the next part. Like once you have the product, you know, is this product ready to get you know marketed? Like, at what stage are you? Is are you know a uh, few people trying it and getting value? Is is there a mass market out there? Do you need to build the product in a way that you know can be an entry level product that can land and expand and all that? So you need to understand all of that uh, before you step on the gas of of sales. Because if you step on the gas of sales, if the if the car is not rolling downhill you know, pushing uphill takes a lot of money and a lot of effort, you know, which which is harder to, to do, which some people do. And it starts rolling downhill at some point. But um, I would also, you know, try to be always pushing the car on flats rather than pushing it uphill.
0: What do you mean by that?
1: What I mean by that is like, we were early in the market. You know, we were in this market is now called a customer data platform and we are we, we are the creators of this market uh, and I'm not proud of it because I was you know eight years early into the marketing trying to explain people you're know, evangelizing and so forth so if you have if you have in, in that phase of growth if people want to do like if you people ask you around like what's the ROI or can we do a Pilot, or um, you know, can can you explain to us what you do, and and we we're gonna have like five meetings and whiteboard sessions and so forth. Those are signals. Or do you have an ROI calculator? Like if somebody's asking for an ROI calculator, it just means that whatever you're selling is not you know is not mainstream yet. So for that, you know, I would do much more kind of word of mouth, reference selling, and so forth, and not build a a sales engine that you know that can ramp because once you build a sales engine, those people you know they want like constant leads coming in there needs to be a conversion rate there needs to be a machine like don't build that machine until uh, you go through that you've you, you end the phase of whatever you're doing where people are not asking for ROI calculators or proof points or free trials and so forth
0: yeah. I mean that's a great insight. It's really, but I think it's really tough to do because, as you said earlier, when you've got the the revenue pressure, whether that's you know self inflicted or it's external, uh, you you it's it's very hard not to be in a rush to put your foot on the pedal and and accelerate.
1: That's right. I mean once you get once you get money from the VCs, that's it. Like I mean, people are people drool over you know getting money from the VCS and I have some of the best VCS in the world that support me and they're very supportive but at the end of the day they are giving you money for you to grow like if you you know they're not giving you money to build product right like I mean of course some of that money is going to go to product but they're not they're, they're, they're not gonna get an exit um, for for their money. When you build the greatest product in the world, they're going to get an exit when you build that product, and when you have revenue against that product, right? Um, right. So once you get the money, the clock starts ticking. That pressure, you can keep that pressure off for a little bit. You know, if you if you are upfront about it, saying like, "I'm going to take the next six months or a year to build this product," but um, but that was the mistake I've done. i i I should have I should have done that rather than stepping on the gas because I already had like real customers and a few million dollars in revenue and so forth. I, I thought that I could just, you know, build the product, you know, in flight, but that was really hard, really, really hard.
0: So are you saying you wish you had waited longer to raise money?
1: No, I think, um, so yeah, so there are two things, right? One is after I raised money, I, I would have, I should have waited to, I should have like given enough time to build, the product a little bit better than we, what we did. Like, rather than building it in flight, we should have pulled the pulled the boat on shore and built it and then sailed again. Um, the second thing is, I think from a timing perspective, our vision was correct, you know, overall across the board. But we were way early in the market. Like, this whole customer data platform thing is now being talked about by Gartner over the last two years, and it's, you know, they're going to do Magic Quadrant this year and so forth. But we were talking and evangelizing this six years ago, so it was you know we were like we were probably like three, four years early into the market, which is which basically translates into you know we have we have built the market like you know we can claim that we were um, one of the or the original kind of people in this category, but you know you don't get credit for it, right, but you are right. you know using you are burning money. To educate the market and create that market, and it's expensive.
0: Okay, uh, so it's time to wrap up. I'm gonna um, we're gonna go into the lightning round. I'm gonna ask you seven quick fire questions. Are you ready? Sure. Okay. What's the best piece of business advice you've ever received?
1: Cash pays the bills.
0: What book would you recommend to our audience, and why?
1: Um, there's a book called nudge um, it explains how people make decisions how human kind of heuristics of intelligence works it really was uh, enlightening for me to understand how people think and, and work
0: that's uh nudge improving decisions about health wealth and happiness yeah. is that the one yeah okay cool uh what's one attribute or characteristic in your mind of a successful entrepreneur Great. What's your favorite personal productivity tool or habit?
1: As a very creative person, for me, it's surrounding myself with people that are very well organized.
0: Uh, what's a new or crazy business idea you'd love to pursue if you had the extra time?
1: Opening a restaurant.
0: Really? That's interesting. Uh, what type of restaurant? Um,
1: I cook kind of Turkish food and I, have, I actually do pop-up restaurants um, every two months. Wow yeah which is which is in high demand so i would turn that into a restaurant
0: wow I, I i I gotta time my my trip to san francisco when you're doing that and if you know of any good turkish restaurants in seattle i'd love to find one <laughs> what's uh an interesting or fun fact about you that most people don't know
1: so i'm uh i'm also a semi-professional potter uh, i when i was doing my phd at brown I was a visiting artist at Rhode Island School of Design uh, doing pottery. I've been doing pottery for over 30 years and uh, have a full studio at home.
0: Wow. You know, I've, I've often said that I should ask these questions at the beginning <laughs> because it just opens up like you just, you just see a different person, right, in terms of when you ask these questions. <laughs> and, and finally, what's one of your most important passions outside of your work?
1: I would, I would say it's pottery, um, and, and cooking.
0: Awesome. Over thank you. It's been a pleasure. I, I've really enjoyed this conversation and, and, you know, thank you for sharing your story. I, I know it's never easy to, to tell the story when you've been working on something for, you know, almost 15 years and, and someone's asking you about the early days <laughs> and the things that you did. So, you know, thank you for, uh, kind of helping us, you know, go through that process and, and hear your story and and sort of how you got started and, and how you built this business. And, and also, you know, for sharing your, your insights and, and, and lessons and mistakes that you made along the way, because that's really, you know, helpful. And one of the things that I really try to do on this show is to share that with our listeners and, and to give people who are, you know, at the earliest stage of their journey, you know, some more motivation and, and inspiration to keep going. So, so thinking, thank you for, uh, you know, helping me to achieve that. You're welcome. Now, if people want to find out about Agile One, they can go to agileone.com. That's A-G-I-L-O-N-E.com. I'll include a link in the show notes as well. And uh, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: Um, They can use my email address. It's omere.artun at agileone.com. O-M-E-R dot A-R-T-U-N at agileone.com.
0: Agile1.com. And uh, just to be clear, it's Omer with an O-M-E-R, just like mine. So don't write it with an O-M-A-R because <laughs> <laughs> neither of us will receive those emails.
1: Nor we will respond. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you, my friend. It's been a pleasure. I wish you all the best. Thank
1: you. Bye-bye.
0: Cheers. Thanks for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this interview. You can get to the show notes as usual by going to thesasspodcast.com where you'll find a summary of this episode and a link to all the resources we discussed. If you enjoyed this episode, then head over to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. And if you're in a good mood, consider leaving a rating and review to show your support for the show. If you're not already in iTunes, just go to thesasspodcast.com and click the iTunes button. Thank you for listening. Until next time, take care.